You are listening to the weekly podcast of Fellowship Paragold, a church committed to making the real Jesus known to every man, woman, and child. For more information about our church, please visit us at www.fellowshipparagold.com. Glad you're here. We're continuing in the series through the book of Philippians, and we're discovering together how to find joy in all of life. In Acts chapter 8, verse 8, uh, the Bible says that Philip went down to Samaria. He proclaimed the gospel, and as a result, there was much joy in that city. A lot of times when people think of Christianity, they might use a lot of different words or adjectives to describe Christianity. Joy is often not used to describe it. That's really a shame because true Christianity is not so much about rules to follow as it is about a joy to be found. And uh, that's found primarily in Christ, and we're showing you in this series how we can find that true joy in all of life, no matter what season we are in. So uh, Philippians chapter 3, I'm going to read in verses 1 through verse... 11. Finally, my brothers, one way we know that Paul is a preacher is he says, finally, when he's only halfway through his book. (laughs) Just one more point, right? Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same thing to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by spirit, by the Spirit of God, and glory in Christ Jesus, and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh, if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law of Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness, under the law, blameless. But... Whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection, sharing his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may obtain the resurrection from the dead. Let's pray together one more time. Father, I pray for each man, woman, and child who is here today. I uh, believe that there is nobody here uh, by accident. We're all maybe here for different reasons, and there's different events that's led us to this point, but I believe that ultimately it's your Holy Spirit that's drawn us in today to hear from you. And so I pray that you will remove the distractions and the busyness of life, that we'll be able to just focus in on what you have for us today, and that you'll use it to transform our hearts more and more into your likeness so we can experience the joy that we all were created for and are longing for and have not been able to find in anything that the world has offered us. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Back whenever I was in college, I had some buddies that played in a band, and they had won some sort of a a competition that landed them at the Arrowhead Music Festival at the Convocation Center. Anybody go to the Arrowhead Music Festival at any point in your life? One part, you're like, so uh, it's okay. I was there too. So um, anyway, so they got a chance, my buddy's band, to play outside of this uh, concert that consisted of uh, Ingram Hill, 
Earshot, Salava, and Tommy Lee. Okay, that was, where the, that was the lineup for the Arrowhead Music Festival. And so they were outside playing, and I was watching them. I had to go use the restroom, and so I walked into a door at the Convocation Center to try to find a bathroom. And while I'm back there, uh, a guitar player from Ingram Hill comes up to me and just says, Hey, man, I've been looking for the stage. you have any idea where the stage is? And I was like, yeah, of course I do, which I had no idea where it was. But I was like, this is a great opportunity to hang out with a band member. And so like, we kind of walk around, and eventually we find the stage. And so I'm like, yeah, here it is. And, and, and uh, you know, I'm kind of looking around and kind of in all these different stars that I see. And I'm about to leave before I get in trouble when a roadie comes up to me and says, dude, don't just stand there. Help us carry some stuff. And I'm like, oh, yeah, absolutely. And so like, I grab like, a symbol or something, a symbol stand, and I begin to like, carry some stuff in for them. Well, before I know it, people are filing into the convocation center. The show's about to start, and I'm still backstage with all these bands. And I'm like, these these people don't have a clue that I don't belong here. So I'm just like going to fake it till I make it, you know? And so I, I stay back there and, and, uh, you know, I get to watch Ingram Hill comes on first. And so they play their show and they come off. And what's really cool is, uh, after they played, another roadie came up to me and said, Hey man, we need you to help carry equipment off the stage and put new band equipment on the stage for the next act. Now, what's cool about this is the entire convocation center was, was, I mean, it was a sold out show. And my friends who were in this band, um, had also won, I think it was like 30 third row seats to the concert. So all week long, they're rubbing in my face. We have third row seats. We're going to get to be right there by the stars, blah, 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 all this kind of stuff. Well, they had no idea where I was. They just knew I'd went to go use the bathroom. They didn't see me again. So all of a sudden I walk on stage and just imagine, right? I'm looking, I'm like, nice seat suckers. You know, it's like looking at them. And it's like, and they're like, what are you doing? And they're like, looking at you, like, this is crazy. And so, uh, true story. And so I'm carrying stuff off at one point, like a beach ball comes on stage. And, you know, people hit the beach balls at the concerts. And I grab the beach ball, and I'm just going to throw it back. But when I do, everyone's like, here, here, here. And I'm like, just playing off of it. I'm like, oh, you want it? No. How about over here? You want it? People's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And so it was like this really surreal moment. And so eventually I throw the ball and whatever. So anyways, I'm hanging out backstage, talking to all these people. And eventually Tommy Lee, right, ex-drummer uh, of Motley Crue. Is that right? So he comes out, you know, big celebrity. He didn't want to like, hang out with anybody until like five minutes before, but he comes out and uh, he stands right beside me. He's a really tall guy, by the way. And I'm standing there, I'm like, hey, play it cool, play it cool. So I look and I'm like, hey, what's up, Tommy? And uh, he's like, hey, what's up, man? And then like he went and he played a show and, and did a good job. And, and, and that was our interaction. But here's the thing. For the next three or four months, if anybody brought up Tommy Lee, I act like we were best friends. <laughs> forever right somebody or somebody's like talking about something they'd be like yeah you know tommy lee i saw he's like oh yeah man that's so tommy you know whatever i mean i'd act like literally like we had known each other like forever but the truth is my interaction was like that short with him and you see the reason i share that today is because my fear is that there are some of you here today who you know jesus the way i know tommy lee in that you maybe know about Jesus, but you do not really know Jesus. And therefore, as a result of that today, you sit here and you don't really have affections for Jesus. You don't really love Jesus. There's not a real pursuit of Jesus. Rather than delighting in Jesus, you have an indifference towards Jesus. And the reason this should be a concern to you this morning is, listen carefully, Where there is an indifference to Jesus, you reveal that you really don't know the real Jesus. In Psalm 63, 
I think I can turn there. Psalm 63, maybe we can put it on the screen for you. We get a glimpse into the life of someone who has a personal, intimate relationship with the God of the universe. And I want you to hear the language that he uses in this psalm. Psalm 63, verse 1, he says, O God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you as in a dry and weary land where there is no water. Do you sense the angst here? The psalmist says, man, I, have a, I know God in such a way that, man, if, if I feel like he's even like remotely distant, I'm like, I think I'm going to die. Like my, my soul, he says, thirst for you. It almost sounds like lust. He says in verse 2, so, so I've looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied as with the fat and rich food. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you in the watches of the night. For you have been my help. And in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. My soul clings to you. And your right hand upholds me. You see the desire there? And someone who's met God and knows God, the compassion, this holy discontentment that, that, that I haven't, I'm not content with the amount of God I have. I need more and more and more. Guys, this is what we see of men and women throughout the scripture who truly know God. And it's not just what we see in the scripture. We see it also throughout history. For example, Martin Luther, the great reformer, once said this. I wish to devote my mouth and my heart to you. Do not forsake me, for if ever I should be on my own, I would easily wreck it all. Augustine or Augustine, if you've been to seminary, who's a great theologian and philosopher around 480, says this, how sweet. This guy was like a big womanizer. I mean, just, anyways, crazy story. But he says this, when he became converted, how sweet all at once it was for me. To be rid of those fruitless joys which I had once feared to lose. You drove them from me, you who are true, the sovereign joy. You drove them from me and you took their place. Oh Lord, my God, my light, my wealth, and my salvation. One more, Brother Lawrence, who was a monk, says, I've had such charming and delicious thoughts of God, I'm ashamed to mention them. After all of my theological education, I still have no idea what he's talking about there. But here's the point. When you read the scriptures and you look down throughout history, what you will find is that men and women who truly know the triune God carry within their souls this angst. I need more of him. They carry within them this yearning to to know God, a yearning that if we can be honest today, to some of us might be foreign. It might be something that some of us in here today have no idea what that is like. And listen, for me, this was my story. I grew up in church, was there every Sunday morning, Sunday night, Wednesday night. In many ways, the church building was my second home. But for me, when I would see people like Miss Richie, who was a little old woman who clearly loved Jesus and pursued Jesus and gave her life to Jesus, I would look and I would say, the God she worships must be different than the God I worship. Because the God I worship, though I know the Bible says he can save me, I in no way think he can satisfy me. And so though I'll give him my afterlife, I'm not going to give him this life because to be honest, he's not worth it. That was the way I viewed God for most of my life. And if you can be honest, maybe that's where some of you are this morning. And what I just want to say is, look, if you do not desire God, it's just because you do not really know him as he truly is. You may know about Jesus, 
but you do not really know Jesus. You may have heard me talk about him, heard others talk about him. You've even been around other people who have a personal relationship with him, but you personally do not have a life-giving, joy-filled relationship with this Savior. And if that's where you are, welcome. You belong here. Don't feel any pressure. All I want to do today is I just want to show you from Philippians 3 how you truly can know this Jesus in such a way that you can experience a joy in all of life. Does that make sense? So if you look with me again, in Philippians chapter 3, I'm going to read in verses 1 through 3 again. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord, for to write the same thing to you is of no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Okay, here's what Paul just said. Let me unpack this for you. What he said is, look, there are some people in your midst, Church of Philippi, who they really believe that their faith hinges more on what they do for God than what God has done for them. These are people who would walk around and say things like this. Yeah, I haven't been perfect. I mean, sure, there was 2013, right? But though I maybe am not the best person, I'm better than that person. Though I I may not have it all together, I really do think that my good outweighs the bad if I really look at all of it. And therefore, in my imagination, in my mind, I think that someday I will be able to stand before God and he will say, well done, good and faithful servant. Your good outweighs the bad. Now, welcome into heaven. Paul says, these are people that, listen, guys, in the religious south, we call the good old boys or the good old gals. You know what Paul calls them? Dogs. He says they're dogs, and he says, look out for them, which is amazing to me. And Paul, I mean, he's writing to a church. Guys, do you realize this church right here is facing immense persecution because of following Jesus? They literally, Nero would literally take Christians who would not stop preaching Jesus, would put them, would impale them with a stake and light them on fire to light up his backyard orgies. That's what was happening to these people. Read your history. And what's amazing to me is Paul doesn't say, look out for Nero. Look out for for the Roman government. He says, look out for the dogs. Why? Because what can Nero do to you? The worst he can do is destroy your body. You believe this message, it'll destroy your soul. So Paul says, look out for the dogs who are teaching that it needs to be Jesus plus something else in order for you to experience salvation. And look what he says next in verse 4. He says, look, I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh. But if anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. And then look what he says in verse 5. I was circumcised on the eighth day. People used to brag about that. Um, circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, the tribe of Benjamin. That's, that's Paul's way of saying, man, I'm Jewish to the core. I was raised by a Jewish family. I'm from the tribe of Benjamin, which, by the way, the tribe of Benjamin gave Israel their very first king. Anybody know what Israel's first king's name was? Anybody? Saul. Anybody know what Paul's name was before he was converted? Saul. He's saying, dude, I'm Jewish to the core, man. He, he goes on, and he, which, you know, the Jews were considered to be God's favored special people. And he says, man, I'm Jewish to the core. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. Some of you uh, are, are Greek-speaking Hebrews, but I'm actually a Hebrew-speaking Hebrew, which means I can read the Bible in its original language. As to the law, I'm a Pharisee. Paul's like one of like 70 of the most super spiritually elite people in this culture. He had the Bible memorized. And then he says, as to righteousness under the law and blameless. Blameless. 
What Paul is saying here is this. Look, you think you've done some good stuff in this life? Come bring your good stuff, stack it next to mine, and you'll be embarrassed. He says, you think you are good? You think you have an impressive spiritual resume? You are JV at best compared to me. This is spiritual smack talk is what he's doing. He's literally saying in here, you're not even, look, when it comes to just being a good old boy or good old guy, you're not even in the same league as me. In modern times, what Paul is saying here is, look, I never miss Sunday school. I'm at every single Sunday gathering. And not only do I attend, but when I attend when the offerings plates pass, I always put in 10%. I always serve. Man, I don't, and I don't fight against it. So, you know, Julie calls me, wants me to serve in fellowship kids. It's like, man, I'm on it. Right? I only listen to Christian music, like even the cheesy stuff from 1980s, right? When it's like Sandy Patty on cassette tape. Paul's like, that's my stuff. I never watch rated R movies that were not about the crucifixion of Jesus. I don't cuss. I don't even invent cuss words, like Christian cuss words, like son of a biscuit eater, right? Like, like I, don't, I don't do that. I share my faith more than anybody else. I mean, the list goes on and on and on. But then look, because in verse 7, look, what Paul is going to say as loud as he can is, Who cares? Who cares? Because in verse 7, look, he says, Whatever gain I had, I now count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, verse 8, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for his sake. I've suffered the loss now of all things, and I count them as rubbish. You know the Greek word for rubbish here was actually an explicit in the New Testament? Do you know that? It's a very strong, nasty word. It's the, it's the, it's the Greek word skubalon. And if I actually like wanted to give you the English equivalent to that today... Like, you would want to kick the scuba line out of me, right? Like, like you would not be happy with this, this word that I would use for you. But what Paul is basically saying here is, look, all of that stuff that I once thought was so good and I was banking my life on, literally, he says, it was all crap because I did not know Jesus. He says in verse 9, I want to be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Paul says, you know, it's crazy, but there was actually a day where I thought that my good works is what made me good before God. Hey, he says, isn't that crazy? There was a day where I built up my own little spiritual resume that, for the record, is better than your spiritual resume. And I honestly thought that this resume would get me into heaven. But now, he says, my eyes have been opened, and I see Christ as he really is, and I realize that everything I thought was gain was actually a loss apart from knowing him. Guys, it's so important that we get this today because, look, all of us in here are trying to build up a spiritual resume, whether you want to call it that or not. All of us are trying to do things to impress God and others and ourselves, all trying to work hard, trying to do things to be accepted before God, others and ourselves. And and what Paul is saying, look, when you know Jesus, when you trust in Jesus, you can stop trying to establish your own imperfect resume and you can start trusting in the perfect resume of Christ and that his perfection is what gives you self-worth. When this happens, guys, when you finally accept the perfect resume of Christ on your behalf, when you find yourself in his righteousness, then your heart can be filled with joy. Because you know why? 
Because what happens is whenever you're clothed in the righteousness of Christ, when you take on his spiritual resume, despite your imperfections, you can still, despite your flaws, know that you can stand before God holy and blameless and accepted, fully loved, perfectly valued for all eternity, and there is nothing anybody can do to take that from you. This is what Paul is getting at when he says, I want to be found in Christ, not having a righteousness of my own, but that which comes through faith in Christ Jesus. I don't want to stand before God on judgment day and say, well, look at all my good works. You realize Isaiah says your good works are like a filthy rag before God compared to his holiness. Our good works don't impress God. You don't want to stand before God someday and say, but look how good I was. You want to stand before God someday and say, I'm with him, Jesus Christ. That is our access into a relationship with God, into heaven. Let me tell you why this is such a good, why this is so important on the ground level. As some of you have heard me talk about, when things don't go well in the church, here at Fellowship, you know what happens to me? I get incredibly anxious, incredibly fearful. And in my my attempts to get bigger than my fears, I rage on the inside. And I don't mean like I'm like flipping over tables and trying to set my hair on fire and like ripping my clothes. Like, like, I, like on the inside, I, I experience a legitimate rage where I'm just kind of like boiling with this, with this anger and this aggression that I'm like, oh, I've got to do something about this. got to fix this. I've got to take care of this right now. And what happens is that eventually bleeds out onto my wife where I, I can be sharp with her in my tone. I can become passive aggressive with her or with some of you who maybe I feel like that you're actually like getting in the way of at the end of the day is my own spiritual resume. The reason that I, I get so upset sometimes when things don't go well in the church is there's still, for me, functionally, this unbelief that says, Jared, you are not valued if you cannot lead this church. You see what I'm doing? I'm still trying to build up my own form of righteousness rather than trusting in the perfect righteousness of Christ. And therefore, when I feel like I'm failing as a pastor, I can hate myself. Because I feel like it's taken away from the value and the worth that I totally need by my own power. And look, for you, I know, you're not a pastor. For you, maybe it's parenting. Maybe parenting is your own little form of your spiritual resume. Where you believe, man, if I can't be a good parent, like, what's the point? And so when your kids are disobedient, what happens? You freak out. You get embarrassed. Right? You can't sleep. You're incredibly anxious over it. Why? Because your value, your identity is so tied to your children. And maybe for you it's not parenting. Maybe it's for you it's to be the cool kid in school or it's your marriage or your job or your possessions. The point, is just, the point is just this. All of us are tempted to build up our own righteousness, our own resume to help us live with God, ourselves, and others. And if you can be honest, you know today, no matter how hard you try, it's never enough. You always end up dropping the ball You're never good enough, no matter how hard you try. Like Adam and Eve, guys, if we can just kind of peel back the layers of church and just say, hey, God bless you, brother, and we all look great and we're all smiling. If you can just kind of peel back those layers for a minute, we all know we're naked and ashamed of it. We all know we're not what we should be as parents, as a spouse, as an employee, as a friend. We know that as a child of God. Where Adam and Eve try to put fig leaves over themselves, what we try to do is we try to put a spiritual resume up in order to prove that we really are valued, that we really do matter. And what Paul says, the great thing about when you know Jesus, when you gain Jesus, he says you gain his righteousness. And what that means, listen, if you're a Christian, what is true of Jesus is now true of you. That because Jesus at the cross was treated the way you deserve to be treated for your sins, you can now in him be treated the way he deserves to be treated because of his righteousness. 
This is why Paul says, good works minus Jesus, it's a steaming pile of scubalon. That's all it is. Michael Horton, in his book, Crisis Christianity, says the following. Hey, what would things look like if Satan really took control of a city? Over half a century ago, Presbyterian minister Donald Gray Barnhouse offered his scenario in his weekly sermon that was broadcast nationwide on CBS radio. You ready for this? What would a city look like if, if Satan took over? Barnhouse speculated that if Satan took over Philadelphia, which is the city he lived in, pastored in, all of the bars would be closed, pornography would be banished, and pristine street streets would be filled with tidy pedestrians who smiled at each other. There'd be no swearing. The children would say, yes, sir, and no, ma'am. And the churches would be full every Sunday where Christ is not preached. You know what's so scary to me about this quote? What Barnhouse is describing here is I think it's the very thing that a lot of people in the religious South want for themselves and for our kids. Jesus or no Jesus, just be obedient. Just be polite. Just make good grades. Just work hard. Just marry somebody that's a nice person someday. Just try not to do anything so crazy that you're going to land in jail. Right? Those might all be great wishes, guys, but what Paul's getting at today is, look, if we or our kids, even if we have all of that and we do not have Jesus, we have nothing in the end. It's all a waste. All the good stuff, Paul says here, man, it was gain. There was gain from this, but it's rubbish compared to not knowing Christ. It's crap apart from not knowing the real resurrected King Jesus. Therefore, fellowship, let me just encourage you today, please don't get caught up in secondary pursuits. Don't make the secondary pursuit the primary pursuit. Don't get caught up in this legalistic and moralistic, I've got to try harder to be better just to be good for goodness sake, which will leave you looking really, really good on the outside but dead on the inside. Pursue Jesus. Know Jesus. And I want to encourage you, look, do whatever you can to cultivate that relationship with Jesus. Do whatever you can to stir your heart towards him. I, I think, guys, I think we're off on something. If I can kind of, I think we're off on something. In, in the Christian life, don't we often try to ask the question, is this right or is this wrong? Is this good or is this bad? And if it's wrong, don't do it. And if it's bad, don't do it. Is that, that's typically the question we ask. That's the wrong question. The question should not be, is this good or is this bad? Is this right? I think the question should be, does this thing stir my heart towards Jesus or does it not? And if it doesn't, then don't do it. In Hebrews 12, verse 1, it says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. You see what the writer of Hebrews is saying? He says there's some things that will keep you from knowing Jesus and following Jesus that are sinful, and then there's some things that are morally neutral. They're called weights. They're not sinful in themselves. But the way you're using them and you're allowing them to function in your life, it's actually keeping you from knowing Jesus and following him. So the question, again, should not be, is this right or is this wrong, is this bad, is this good, but does this stir my affections towards Jesus or does it not? And this is going to be different for all of us. Like, I want to be practical for a second. I think if we're going to have our hearts stirred towards Jesus, if we're going to truly know him in a way that we can enjoy him, there are certain things we all need to do. We all need to read scripture. We all need to pray. We all need to do things like this. We come together on Sunday morning and we sing songs and, and we celebrate God's grace through communion. And I know that because the scripture commands us to do those things. 
But then there's also really unique things to each of us that you need to figure out what they are and how they stir your heart towards Jesus and make sure that you do those. So, for example, here's what I mean by that. There are things in my life that, for me personally, really do stir my heart towards Christ. And it may not be what stirs your heart towards Christ, but for me it does. So let me give you some examples. Walking through cemeteries. How stupid is that? But for me, it stirs my heart towards Christ. I did it with my grandparents growing up, and, and even now I'll walk through a cemetery, and even recently I, I came across a, a headstone where a guy had died at the same age that I am now. And I just sat there, man, and I kind of just got on my knees, and I thought, man, I wonder if this guy had a wife. I wonder if he had kids. He died in like the 30s. Like, man, I wonder where he's been for almost 100 years now in eternity. I wonder if he thought he had his whole life ahead of him. I wonder if it was like a sudden death or it was like cancer. Like what? And in that moment, as I begin to think about that, my own my mortality and like the fact that I'm not going to live forever, I mean, in that moment, it stirred my heart towards Christ. And I just begin to worship and praise him, right? I'll tell you another thing. I, mean, I do it every morning. You drive by my house. I'll be sitting in the rocking chair on our front porch with a cup of coffee. I love doing that. It stirs my heart towards Christ. For some of you, you hate coffee. That'd be a dumb idea, right? Like you're like going to go home tomorrow and like brew your coffee and be like, okay, now what? Um, I guess I'll go to the cemetery, you know? It's like, I'll try that. Like, like, and I was like, it's different for everybody, right? Um, here's another one that, that some of you is going to think is really crazy, but I'm just telling you, it, for me, pop music. It really does. Pop music stirs my heart towards Jesus. In fact, my wife and I are planning to go to a concert in Nashville this Thursday to hear a pop band. And, and, and just to kind of prove a point of just like how weird and unique this is for each person, I've asked Ryan to play 15 seconds of a song from a band I'm planning to go see in concert that, that stirs my heart towards Christ. And we're going to listen to about 15 seconds of it to prove a point, okay? So, Ryan, can you, can you get that going through the speakers? Crank it up, man. For anybody else in here, as you heard that, was there any of you who was like, oh, Jesus. Raise your hand, seriously. Was there anybody else that stirred your heart towards God? Two people. And you're going to the concert too, aren't you, in Nashville? Here's my point. That's unique for me. If you try to take the things that Jared Pickney does to stir my heart towards Jesus, and you try to just take that template and put it on yours, it's not going to work. You have to figure out what that is for you. And I would just say, whatever stirs your heart towards Christ, make sure that you engage in those things. The second question I would ask yourself as it comes to knowing Jesus and enjoying him more is if we're going to ask what stirs my heart towards Christ, what robs my affections towards Christ? And again, guys, listen, here's the thing. Think about this. I've been following Jesus for 14 years, and there are some things that just do not tempt me at all. For example, if I walk out of here and I go to my truck after this is over and someone says, like, say, man, you want some black tar heroin? All right, like... It's not going to tempt me. Like, I'm not going to have to sit there and be like, okay, let me get the pros and cons here. Like, um, pro is, it could be a pretty adventurous Sunday, you know. Like, con, i probably lose my job, and my wife wouldn't be too happy. Right? I don't have to do that. And do you know why? Because for me, guys, you have got to get this. What is often true of me, it's the morally neutral things that rob my affections for Jesus more than these heinous, wicked sins. It's the weights that get me. And so let me give you some examples of this. And these are things I would never command you not to do. This is just me. 
I can't follow sports that closely. Because I actually get emotionally disturbed over what some boy does with the ball. How stupid is that? To have my day ruined because an 18-year-old boy fails me on a field. That's just me. It's my own spiritual immaturity. I'm aware of that. I can't follow sports too close. I can't watch too much television. And I'm not one of these guys that's like, that's a demon box, right? Like, I'm not like that. But I can't because you know what happens when I start watching TV too much? I start giggling at things that God hates. And things that are so serious that it took the death of Christ in order to save me from it. And I laugh at it. And so I can't watch a lot of TV. Another thing, I'll give you one more example, is I can't really, I can't stay up past 10, 15 at night anymore. <laughs> because you know what happens when I stay up that late, is I have to sleep in later than I need to, and I end up having to just rush through my quiet time, and the rest of my day just feels off. I just start, bam, blowing through, and like going just another day. So for me, like those are things that I can't do. And here, here's my point. Whether it's stirring your heart towards Jesus, or figuring out what robs your heart of Jesus, It's different for everyone, but we have to figure this out in order for us to truly know him and enjoy him in such a way that we will experience a joy in all of life. Does that make sense? And this is what Paul is just ultimately getting at. He says in verse 10, if we keep reading, he says, man, I just want to know Jesus. Isn't that awesome? I want to know Jesus. You know what's so awesome about that? What has Jesus done for Paul up to this point? As far as like human terms go. Has he made Paul healthier and wealthier? Has he given Paul more safety and comfort? Has he kept Paul from from losing people that are close to him, people dying around him? Dude, Paul has suffered immensely. He's been beaten, he's been shipwrecked, he's been thrown in prison, he's about to to be murdered for preaching Christ. He says, i got to have more of Jesus. Is that not insane to you? That's what happens when you meet the real Jesus. Do whatever you want but I'm going to keep going after him because I know he's better than my safety. He's better than my comfort. He's better than anything the world can offer. I want to have more of Jesus. I want to know him. And look at this, and the power of his resurrection and sharing his sufferings. A lot of times we read this and we're like, yeah, I want the power of the resurrection of my own life. But Paul reminds us very quickly, you can't have resurrection power apart from a cross. If you want to experience resurrection power, you want to to be and experience the joy of being with Jesus and becoming like him, you have to experience suffering. That's what he means right here when he says, I I want to know him more in the power of his resurrection and sharing his sufferings, becoming like him. The word for becoming there literally means to be molded into his image. Some of you, I know a lot of you work at Allen Engineering, and I'm going to probably screw this up. Somebody say, whoa! BJ. And so... uh, I don't really understand how all this works, but, but, um, so if you're going to make a foundation for a building or a house, you have to frame up this area with wood, correct? And then you pour concrete there, and the concrete will eventually mold into, right, the shape that you created with the wood. This is what suffering does for the Christian. Suffering literally molds you more and more into the image of Jesus. More and more into his image. And guys, listen. I feel like an idiot sometimes when I get up here and talk about suffering because I haven't suffered like even remotely close to the way some of you have suffered. But you know what I have found? Is though I love the good times and I'm really happy when everything's going right, it's in suffering that I grow like a weed. It's in suffering that that makes me more like Christ. And by the way, that's the goal of every Christian. 
It's not just to be with Jesus, it's to become like Jesus so that we can do the things that Jesus did. Paul says, for me, this is why, though I've been beaten, I've been shipwrecked, I've lost all my friends and my comfort and my money, I still rejoice because I know Jesus and I know that by sharing his sufferings, I'm becoming more like him in his death. And even that is good news because verse 11, he says, therefore, I'm becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I now can attain the resurrection from the dead. Paul says, you know, I don't know how long I'm going to live. I don't know how much more I have on this life. I don't know if I'm going to die as an old man or a young man, probably a young man. But he says, here's what I know. Because of Jesus, my future is incredibly bright. Because I'm going to obtain the resurrection. He says, you know why I I can sit here with joy in my life? Because I know that one day when I die and Christ returns, my body and my soul will be reunited in the cosmic act of recreation and resurrection. I will be molded perfectly in the image of God. And in that moment, I'll be free from sickness. I'll be free from death. I'll be free from torture. I'll be free from dysfunctional relationships and the consequences of sin. Right? This past week, I woke up uh, one morning and my shoulder was hurting. All I did was sleep that night and my shoulder was hurting. Paul's like, there's going to be a day where I'm not going to wake up hurting. There's going to be a day where I'm going to be free from lust and rage and loneliness. I'm just going to live in this perfect world, ruling and reigning with Jesus forever, experiencing the overflow of God's perfections. The good news is, guys, if you're here today and you know Jesus, this is your long-term plan. This is true of you. Just as Jesus has experienced a death, burial, and a resurrection, guys, if you know Jesus, you're trusting Jesus, you're following Jesus, you too one day will experience a death, a burial, and a resurrection. And what that means now is, listen, guys, we're almost done. What that means now is whatever, wherever you are in the story, if you're trusting in Jesus, here's how your story ends. It ends with an empty tomb. It ends with an empty tomb and a brand new creation and just a living God right in front of you that will give you the salvation and the satisfaction, the forgiveness, the freedom, all of that that you're longing for. This is what we get Whenever we gain Jesus, whenever we truly know Jesus, cherish Jesus. So my question as we end today is this. Do you know Jesus? Not asking, do you know about Jesus? Do you know Jesus? And please don't confuse this question, guys. This is so important. We're about done. I'm not asking you, have you been baptized? I'm not asking you, did you pray a prayer? I'm not asking you, do you feel like the good outweighs the bad? I'm asking you, and I'm in front of a crowd, but I'm in front of a crowd of individuals. Only you can answer this question. Your spouse can answer it. Your kid can answer it for you. Only you can answer it. Do you know Jesus? I I don't know why this verse does not terrify us more. And, uh, but it's been on my mind all week. And, and listen, guys, I'm not trying to just like scare you for the sake of scaring you. If you're scared, you probably should be scared. Okay? I'm just trying to read you the text. Jesus himself said, this is his words, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not... 
preach in your name? There'll be preachers in hell. Did we not cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And I will declare to you, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. For some of you this morning, the thing that's keeping you from Jesus is not your bad deeds. It's your damnable good works. Very few of us in here probably feel like we're too bad for Jesus. Some of us think we're too good for him. And we're banking off of some past stuff we've done for our eternity. And it's rubbish. The thing, the thing that made Paul a Christian was not the way he changed how he viewed his sin. This has been rocking my world all week. What made Paul a Christian is not that he changed how he viewed his sin. Paul always knew sin was bad. He was a Pharisee. He always knew he knew repent of his sin. What changed Paul and made him a Christian was not how he changed how he viewed his sin. It's how he viewed his righteousness. It's how he viewed his good stuff. And only whenever he repented, not only of his bad stuff, but his good stuff, did he truly experience a personal relationship with Jesus that changed his life and filled him with a joy that could not be taken from him no matter what. I want to end with this. Um, And I asked Jason and Kelly if I could use this Wolfenbarger. Um, Most of you know Jason and Kelly. Love Jason and Kelly, right? They're awesome. Um, They have served faithfully in this church for like four years. I think, is that right? Four years? They lead a missional community. Just this past Monday, did Christ save them? I didn't know. They didn't know. You didn't know. But they did not know Jesus. They did not walk with a personal, life-giving relationship with Jesus. And therefore, without going through all the details, in their brokenness together, they cried out to Jesus on Monday, and he saved them. And here's the text they sent me. A couple mornings later, I just sent a text. Like, man, they were, you know, they were just like blowing up our cell phones talking about how good God is and all this. And I just sent a message a couple weeks later or a couple days later, and I said, man, I'm so thankful for what God's doing. I'm just going to read you their, their, their words from Kelly first. Kelly says, thank you, Jared. I have never felt such joy and excitement in my life. At times, I feel that I need to shout it from a mountain that God has saved me and he's living in me. I know there will be ups and downs, but the ups and downs we experience from here on cannot and will not compare to the ones before because we have God on our side and fighting for us. Thank you for the words of encouragement. I know I speak for both of us when I say we are beyond thankful for you and our fellowship family. Jason says, well said, babe! Exclamation point, exclamation point, exclamation point. We are so excited. We want to share our story with everyone And we know that Jesus has a plan for us to share our story so he is glorified. We cannot get enough of Jesus. Or each other. He has restored everything in our lives. Everything feels so right now. Thank you. Thank you for praying for us. It's been God's plan. And what a sweet plan. I pray that he gets the glory for all things.
I just want to say this, guys. We're not making this up. Each week when we get up here and we talk about how the real Jesus brings real joy to all of life, we're not making that up. And if you know Jesus, you know what I'm talking about. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, you can. Here's the good news. If your good works can't save you, your bad works can't damn you. Jesus is enough for everybody in here. His grace is sufficient. Call out to him today. Call out to him today. Know him and experience the joy that is unshakable in all of life.